It's good to see you. Um, my name is Matt. I am uh, part of the leadership here. I help lead life group with Rachel, who you've already met. And um, if you have a Bible, uh, I'd just like to invite you to, to turn to the book of Jonah. We're going to be starting chapter 2 this morning. And this week we see Jonah hit rock bottom. Okay, we... It, it, and if we are being realistic, we probably don't like to think about this very much ourselves. But if we're being re- realistic, we recognize that for, for each one of us, there is going to be a day in our lives that is the worst day of our lives. Um, and for some of us, we may be pretty sure that that day has already come and gone. Although I, I suppose it's, it, it's impossible to be certain uh, but for many of us, that, that day is still to come. And, and so the question is, whether or not you are a, a Christian or, or whether you're just looking on and looking in on, on this faith thing, the question is, what hope is there for that day, for the worst day? Where is God on that day? You know, one of the things I just so love about the Bible is its honesty and its readiness to to deal with life as it is, even at its very worst. And what we're about to read in Jonah is we're going to see what Jonah says on his worst day or on his three worst days. And I, I've talked to some people who are, who are brand new this morning, and just for, for you, because it's your very first time, I'm just going to bring you up to speed on where we are in the story of Jonah. So Jonah is a prophet, right? He hears from God, and he hears from God one day. God says to him, Jonah, you know that city, right? You know that city, Nineveh? It's full of evil people, wicked sinners who do awful, awful things. Okay, Jonah, I want you to go and preach to them a message and say to them, if you don't repent, God is going to judge you. But if you do repent, then God will change his minds, and instead of judgment, you're going to receive forgiveness instead. Okay, Jonah, that's what you've got to go and tell them. And Jonah gets up, and he runs away. He, he wants no part in any plan that means that this, this, this wicked, evil city may possibly end up being forgiven. He doesn't want any part of it, and so he hops on a boat and runs away. Um, and there's this big storm. He doesn't get very far. There's this big storm. And because the storm is Jonah's fault, the, the sailors pick him up. They don't really want to, but in the end, they pick him up, and they throw him overboard. And that is where we are. This week, this is the week that we get to the fish. And, and Rich, when he uh, kicked off the, the sermon series three weeks ago, was um, just giving us some reasons why we should view Jonah as a, as a historical story that actually happened rather than a myth or a legend or an allegory. And here's why I think we should take the... The story of Jonah, seriously, as if it actually happened, um, just number one, because Jesus did. Because Jesus took the story of Jonah seriously. When when we read what Jesus says about, there's no embarrassment for for Jesus about the story of Jonah. He he seems to think it's a, a thing that actually happened. And secondly, one of the things that Jesus says about the story of Jonah is that the whole point of Jonah being in the fish three days and three nights is it's meant to foreshadow. 
It's meant to kind of nudge us and point us forward to Jesus spending three nights, uh, three days and three nights in a tomb, dead, before being raised to life. Listen, if Jesus did not is is not raised from life and living now, there's there's literally zero reason why any of us should be here. We may as well all get up and go. But if Jesus is alive, if the tomb is empty and there's plenty of good reasons that we might think that it is empty, then, well, if he is alive, then everything changes. And if Jesus rises from death to everlasting life and a miracle of that magnitude has actually happened, then Jonah being chewed up by a fish is a, is a small-time miracle in comparison. So let us read what happens next in the story of Jonah? Let us um, read chapter 2. We're going to uh, begin on the very last verse of chapter 1. Let's see what happens. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit." O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let me just um, let me just read that very first verse I read out again. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So this is the fourth week we've been in Jonah now, and it's just been interesting to me as I've watched Rich preach over three weeks and being in various conversations and listening in on different people's thoughts on the story of Jonah. The, the thing about this story that has caused the most questions and the most concerns from just amongst us, Grace City Church, is not, did the fish bit really happen? That, that has not been the, the thing that has actually gotten under people's skin. Not, not like in a massive way, but de- definitely in a stirring things up sort of way. The thing that has gotten under our skin is just simply what God does. What God decides to do. I, th- I think we, we're, what we're coming up against in this story is all of these ways in which we are different to God. 
all of these ways in which God is different to us. He does things we would not do. We would not even think about it. They wouldn't even enter our minds as a possibility. In the book of Jonah, far from encountering some little God who, who thinks just like we do and plays by all of our rules, we, we see a God who is quite unlike us. This is what we saw back in chapter 1 in verse 4. But the Lord hurled, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Goodness gracious, right? Hurled. If I, if, I were to, if I were to hurl anything at you, there's like, there's an intentionalness to it. There's, there's even like a, a, a violence to that. Would God really do that? It's uncomfortable, isn't it, to, to imagine that God would do something like that to one of his people, even to one of his prophets. And in the verse we just read again, we encounter this same problem, if you like, once more, right? What does it say? And the Lord appointed, appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. That word there, appointed, arranged, sent. It's in the same way that someone might make an appointment for you to, to, to see a doctor or a physio or a dentist. God makes an appointment for Jonah to see the fish. In his sovereign power as Lord, ruler over the universe, God hurls a storm and appoints the fish to swallow him. If there's one thing from the story of Jonah that is bothering you this morning, it's what I've just said. You're alarmed that the Bible would say it, and say it in such a matter-of-fact way. Yeah, God does that. And you might say, well, I don't know, I don't think God does do that. And the, Jonah does. Jonah thinks that. We, we see that when he's, he's swallowed by the fish, what is it that happens next? Well, Jonah begins to pray. And it's worth, it's worth pointing out, isn't it, that this is the very first time that we see this prophet of God who's gone rogue actually pray to, to the Lord. From the moment God gives Jonah his mission to go to Nineveh, Jonah has been, chapter 1 put it like this, fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And as such, there's not really been much discussion. There's not really been much talking, has there? So let's see. Jonah begins to pray. He's going to start praying. What, what does he say? Well, one of the things he admits is that he knows who is responsible for his current predicament of being in a fish. Verse 3. For you cast me into the deep. For, for you, not the sailors, not the, not the mariners, not even me by my bad decisions. No, you cast me into the deep. Into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. God, you have done this. You are the one who has buried me under the sea. Now I can tell, I'm stood out here, I can see everyone here. I can tell a great many of you right now are at the very least, a little bit uncomfortable. I would argue that everyone in this room is at least a bit uncomfortable with this element of the story because if God does this to Jonah, 
Well, he could do that to you. He could do that to me. And this, this far inland, it's probably not going to be a storm at sea or a, a fish. But we do wonder, don't we, what else might God do? Even as I kind of put this question before you this morning and, and being, being forced to think about it, you may even be wondering to yourself, I've, I feel, a, a, I, I'm noticing there's some fear there when I, when I think about that question. And here's why we have a problem with this, to a certain extent. To a certain extent, we believe that if God had just allowed Jonah to flee from his presence, we believe Jonah would be just fine. We think to ourselves, if, if, God, if Jonah had been successful at escaping God, then he would have had an easier life. He would have ended up in a better place than the place we find him in chapter 2 in a fish. What we have to see, though, is if God had simply given Jonah over to his desires to flee from his presence, Jonah would have ended up in a far worse place spiritually than inside a fish, inside an ocean, inside a storm. Scripture makes it clear that we were made to be in the presence of God. That's built in. There's a design. There's a calling. There's a purpose in just who we are. We're meant to be with God. And therefore, turning from God, who is the source of all true life, means turning to death. If we read about the the storm that God hurls and the fish God appoints, and we think... pesky, meddling God is making life difficult for Jonah, then what we miss is that up until the point in the story when Jonah starts praying is that every single thing that Jonah has done is self-destructive and suicidal. It may seem that Jonah, he's just taken the path of least resistance, but make no mistake, self-destructive is how Jonah is acting. And whether or not we hear that and believe that, I think is a good litmus test to just how much we think our own sin, our own being apart from God, how much of a problem we actually think that is. Just a a quick little thought experiment. let's, Let's say that God lets Jonah go to Tarshish. Right? No storms, no fish. Right? He gets there. He is assured that Nineveh, the Nineveh that he so hates, gets completely obliterated by God. And, and he's, he's in Spain. He gets to enjoy that Spanish climate that in Ottawa on this particular day, we're thinking that probably sounds quite good. Sounds wonderful. Let's go even further. Let, let's imagine that he gets to live the rest of his life quite happily, right? No, no sickness, no, just, just lacking nothing. But he's away from the presence of the Lord. He may have everything, maybe everything he ever wanted, everything he ever dreamt, but he, he doesn't have friendship with God. 
That's a, that's a question Jesus asks, isn't it? For, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose and forfeit his soul? And God knows the answer for Jonah, nothing. It does not profit a man. It doesn't gain a man anything. It doesn't gain Jonah anything. Indeed, it hurts Jonah because if it is true that God is the source of all true life and Jonah is disconnected if he has if he is cut off from that one well, then Jonah no matter how good things may appear on the surface lives in death and we might describe that sort of living as hell and i think it would be very appropriate to do so when we read Jonah flees from the presence of the Lord. Hell is exactly what Jonah is choosing. You know, he's putting energy into it. He's running towards that. And yeah, God is kind enough to step in. God is merciful. God is gracious enough to, to do something to prevent that. You know, I, I've never been... I've never been involved in like a, a, an intervention. Every kind of, whenever I've seen an intervention, it's always, it's always on a screen. It's always on television or in movies. So I don't know what they're, they're really like. Maybe you've been involved in an intervention. You know what I mean by, by that? When someone is engaged in this pattern of, of self-destructive behavior, you know, whether that's gambling or whether that's an eating disorder or whether that's substance abuse and the the friends and family who love this individual so much are are willing to surprise this individual with a with this detailed account of of all the pain being being caused and experienced that the person has up until this moment been unwilling to acknowledge so here's a question for that individual who's being confronted and, and hearing all these stories and little testimonies and this happened there and the, you said this and, and this is what you don't realize is going on. For that person who's listening to it, is, is that a pleasant experience? No, not, not at all. I, I, I would imagine if it were me that being confronted with all, it would, would be shocking, even, even painful. You know, being forced to, to reckon with all of what my actions were, were doing, to, to, to see the ugliness of the situation. But the friends and the family, they demonstrate their love by being willing, by being willing to afflict even the person with that shock, even that pain. Similarly, in order to rescue them, right? Similarly, this is what we see God demonstrating his love for Jonah in this confrontation that we, that we read about in verse 17 when he makes this appointment with the fish. You know, the, the, the image of an intervention kind of fits because it's so extreme and what we see in Jonah is so extreme, but let's, let's bring it a little bit closer to home. How about the example of, of parenting? Good, healthy parent. It involves say, saying no and it involves... A discipline, does it not? The, the child may even find that discipline to be painful, even, even shocking at times. But the, the best mother in the room, the best father in this room, you, you, whoever you are, <laughs> you get it wrong. 
You get it wrong. You, you go too far one day. You don't go far enough. You don't say no when you, when you should. You say yes when, when you shouldn't. Well, God, the Father, hallelujah, is not imperfect. God is the perfect Father. He knows exactly what is necessary for Jonah in this situation. And he's still the same today. That means he knows exactly what is good and right for you today. Just put yourself in the, in the shoes of Jonah. If, if you were running headlong toward hell and a hellish existence, wouldn't you welcome a heavenly intervention? Wouldn't you welcome a bit of divine parenting, no matter how disruptive or even painful, if it would save you from certain doom? I think in our own, in our less self-destructive moments, we would. So let's get into this prayer of Jonah's. Let, let's start to see what sort of a state is Jonah brought to. When in, in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says this, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Sheol, what, what's he saying there? What's that word mean? Well, well Sheol, is, that's, the, um, that's the Hebrew word for, for Hades. Hades, right, this, this afterlife waiting area. And what Jonah is saying, I have gone down into death itself. Jonah it turns to God only when he hits rock bottom. Only when things get just about as bad as they could be. You know, whether or not Jonah is actually physically dead at this point in the story or not, I, I don't actually think that matters. Jonah is at the end of himself. He, he's recognizing his own spiritual deadness. He, he's living out a, a little bit of a taste of what, just a taste, just three day, a three-day's taster course in what it means to, to flee from the presence of the Lord. For some of us, we, we can see similarities in our, in our own stories, between our own stories and Jonah's story. You know, I, I've known loads of people who first decided to, to go to church when they had exhausted every other option, when these people who turned to God when things were just at their most hopeless. I was, I was reading a story just earlier in, in the week of, of, of a lady who had, had been so... Only came to church um, where she was going through this opioid rehab uh, program, and one of the things didn't know this, but apparently, statistically, uh, if you have some involvement in church, you are far more likely to stick through the the rehab program. And so, the rehab program was like, "Hey, you should try some religion. You should add some religion." She was like, "Very non-specific. That was just what was said." So she said, "Okay, I'm I'm serious about this. I've I've lost everything. I'm going to go to." to church and that was when she that, that's just how she started to meet Jesus having exhausted every other option now i'm not i'm just in case you're wondering is matt standing up here saying uh, in a very self-righteous way well you shouldn't you don't need to get to that 
point where you've lost everything and the, the, only, the only thing you can do, the only thing left on the table is to turn to God. I'm actually not saying that. What I am saying is that actually the opposite is that getting to the end of yourself is absolutely crucial as the first step towards salvation. That, that has to happen. I would go as far to say that if you are a Christian this morning, and I mean if you are a true follower of Jesus, not a, a cultural Christian, not, not a, uh, I think I was baptized as an infant Christian, or I go to church on occasion Christian, but someone who has genuinely been reconciled to God, then there has been a time in your life where you have been appalled at your own sin, horrified at your own inability to, as Jonah says here, be lifted from the pit, totally aware that you must surrender yourself to one outside of your sorry, sick, spiritual condition. Jesus says this, does he, does he not? It, it's the lost who gets found. It's the, the blind who see. It's the sick who receive healing for their souls. The, and, and the ones who, don't, who think they're just A-OK, who, who don't think they're lost or blind or sick, who, who don't reach out for the help that only God can give. It's the poor in spirit. As Jonah is here in chapter 2, it's those ones who inherit the kingdom of God. And those who don't think they're poor in spirit, who maybe think quite a lot of themselves and their moral worth, who, who don't. You know, back, back, when I was, um, back when I was about 17 or 18, um, going, going through whatever the English equivalent of high school is. I think it's high school. Yeah, I think that's right. I knew, I knew this girl called Rebecca. And the one thing you need to know about Rebecca is that Rebecca was amazing at everything. Everything she touched seemed to turn to God. Okay, so academically, she was one of those just irritating people who, who would seemingly not need to put any effort in and just be amazing at just whatever, physics, maths, just incredible. I am not one of those people, right? I never could be. And I'd look at that and go, how can you do that? But not just like, usually you get one thing, right? One thing that you just are really good at and that's it. It's your one thing. But for Rebecca, it was like, okay, academics, um, athletics, she ran track, she, she was musically really gifted, like she played electric guitar in this kind of weird old school metal band like uh, she um what, what else what what else like i can just keep on i can well, she was uh she was very attractive right she received a lot of attention because of that she had all of these interesting hobbies there was always an interesting adventurous holiday vacation coming up for for her she just amazing opportunities and prospects she could have got into any university program anywhere she wanted and I think I, I think I last heard from her about six years ago. So it's been a while. I don't know what's happened in the. She was like accepted into one of the most prestigious PhD physics courses in England, and you just you hear that, and you oh, this is this is someone who I mean I am not exaggerating in any of these aspects. I don't think I have met someone. And I don't think I ever will meet someone who has had this much of a charmed life. 
I don't know if anyone's going, well, you haven't yet met, met me yet. No. Uh, okay, talk to me afterwards. We'll, we'll see. Uh, maybe I'll use you as the illustration next time. Every now and then, o- over the years that I knew her, just sat next to her in maths and physics, we would get into conversations, not during the lesson, because I was struggling enough as it was to keep up, but we'd get into conversations. I'd ask her questions about what she thinks about God and faith and the, the meaning of life, you know, those, those big conversations. And th- there, was, there was this one discussion we had where I really just kind of laid out the gospel you know what it means? Jesus comes and he lives the perfect life and he dies for you on the cross uh, and, and, and then he rises again three days later so that if you were to believe in him, then you would be raised to life in Christ Jesus yourself. And I'm just, I'm expressing this to her and there's this point in the conversation where I, I just remember it so, so very well. I just said, Rebecca, you, you need Jesus. And you've got to hear me right when I say that. I don't, I don't mean, yes, well, I'm, I'm the religious one and I will share the good news to you, poor, poor sinner. No, I, I'm saying, Rebecca, you need Jesus out of a place of knowing how much of a massive sinner that I am. How much, just like Jonah, I, I am an expert rebel running away from the presence of the Lord and I have known the grace of God and what it means and just the life that that brings and I'm saying to Rebecca, Rebecca, you, you need Jesus. I remember her response. It was just, Rebecca, you need Jesus. What do I need? Was her response. What, what do I need? She, she had clearly ta- taken a look around, taken a look at her life, done a, a stock take or, or an in, in inventory and seen that her life was actually very lovely, which it was. That her future was full of opportunity, which it was. She had never come close to, to being in a, in a state like Jonah is in here, in the belly of Sheol, not, not even close Notice as I, as I told, told that story, I was trying to be very careful with my, very specific with my language. I, I tried to describe Rebecca as having a charmed life, not a blessed life. If you remember in, in, in fairy tales, when, when someone has a magical charm placed upon them, they may be very happy, but they don't see reality as it really is. And as, as charmed a life as Rebecca had, I, I don't call it a blessed life because there was no desire for God. There was no relationship with him. I don't know. Listen, I don't know how the story ended. It's been six years, perhaps, at some stage in the last six years, Rebecca has found God. But when, when life, we've got to see this, when life is completely free from hurled storms and appointed fish or whatever our equivalent of those things are, we never feel a need to cry out to God. And I'm not standing up here saying, "Ah, oh, suffering is the best. Let us celebrate it. Stand and sing with me. Suffering. I'm not, I'm not saying that was not, that's not in here. That was, that was in the moment. Yeah, let's sing. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just, I'm just acknowledging that many of you sat in front of me now are Christians today saved directly because difficulty in your life forced you to, to feel poor in spirit and led you to cry out to him. 
rather than to these other things in the world. You know, Jonah talks, he prays about, he says, vain idols. These, these otherworldly things that if you follow them mean you forsake your hope for steadfast love that only God gives. And if you're here this morning and you're, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, that's a question for you. That's the question for you this morning. Have you recognized for yourself the vain quality of worldly things? So what we've seen is that those who, who know they need some saving, even need a saviour, are those who are just well aware of their own sin. Those are the ones who end up crying out to God, as, as Jonah does in chapter 2, and experience salvation. And Christians in the room, we need to remember this. You know, perhaps you're, you're like me, and you notice within yourself a, a, a tendency to be jealous of where other people have got to in life. You look at someone you used to know, and you think, look at well, how well they're doing. We both had, I remember we both had all this list of all these things we wanted to accomplish, and they, they're on to page 700, and I'm still, I'm on the third thing. And we can find ourselves going, ah, I, I don't know, maybe you even heard me describing Rebecca to you, and you were thinking, wow, what, that sounds amazing. That's, that sounds like a life I would, I'd much rather be in her shoes than, than mine. And yet, running from God, being far from God, that's just... It's a hellish place to be. If we, if we view things from an eternal perspective, we, we can recognize that the storms and the fish we encounter, those are the very methods that God uses to lead us to his presence and to keep us in his love. Oh God, would you, would you not let us go? Lord God, would you, would you keep this church from being a church of people who are successful in fleeing from you? Oh, I, I don't want that to happen for me. I don't want that to happen to anyone else here. See, Jonah knows that. He, that's why he's praying things and saying things like he does in verse 4. Then I said, listen to this, I am driven away from your sight. Oh, that sounds bad. Where's the hope? Well, there is hope here. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet, there's the word, there's the, the word. it looks dark, but wait, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Jonah sees, and he sees what very often we miss in our own storms, in our own fish-like situations. He sees what often we, for understandable reasons, cannot see, that even at rock bottom, that God is bringing him out of his rebellion, bringing Jonah to, back into the presence of the very one from whom he fled. See, spiritually, he is in the belly of Sheol, but it's there that there's this resurrection happening here. There's a, there's a grace that Jonah is tasting here. We can see in, in, in Jonah's story that God's methods, as shocking, as alarming as they may initially be for us, they are working. And you know, we're actually going to spend two weeks in chapter two. I'm, I'm doing some of the, the darker, this is the state of Jonah spiritually. This is where he gets to. Next week, Rich is going to open these same verses again for us. And just, uh, what, what is it? How, how does Jonah pray? What, 
What does repentance look like? What does salvation for Jonah look like? What does it mean to repent? 